Tina Vasquez is a first-generation American, and so are the students whom she teaches. But their experiences as immigrants are very different. Tina came to America with her parents from Germany. One of her students arrived from Central America via a truck concealing layers of humans stacked on each other and a subsequent walk across a desert. Other students have never been to school before, never sat at a desk, spending their lives working in agricultural fields to support their families. Her students must often arrive alone, hoping to connect with family members resettled there by the International Rescue Committee. And they look to Tina, hoping to develop survival language skills, social-emotional skills, and friends. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today, we visit with Tina Vasquez, teacher of newcomer students at Charlottesville High School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Tina is a new 2020 fellow who designed a fellowship to attend the International Colloquium on Languages, Cultures, and Identity in Schools and Society in Soria, Spain. When she executes her plans next summer, she will begin on the shores of southern Spain, where most refugees arrive by boat. Then she will attend and present at the colloquium, research across Spain innovative programming addressing the refugee issue, and complete a homestay. All of this to explore the impact of ethnic and cultural identity-related issues on academic success of high school refugee and immigrant English language learners and develop new approaches that support them. I think I'd like to begin our conversation with giving some context as to where you teach and what you teach. So you teach in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I most recently think of the race riots that were there in 2017, but yesterday's headline talked about in Charlottesville that Latino residents account for 25% of all the COVID cases in Charlottesville. I don't think of Charlottesville as having a large Latino population, but your fellowship proposal is designed for that growing demographic. So can you talk a little bit about where you teach and who you teach? Sure. So like you said, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. I teach at Charlottesville High School. We have one public high school in the city. Charlottesville is interesting because it's a refugee relocation site. And to my knowledge, it's the smallest city to be a refugee relocation site. So it sort of has a larger impact on our community than it might in in bigger cities. Really stretches our services. I work with English learners at the high school. I focus on our newcomers new to the country in their first and second year. So getting that survival language, but also the social emotional learning, the cultural adaptation. Every year is very different in terms of which refugee camps are resettled and or when there are waves of students coming from Latin American countries who sometimes are coming with families, but very often are unaccompanied minors. You started teaching in 2005, and in your proposal, you said that you were the only ESL teacher at the school. Yeah. In 2004, I was actually living in Guatemala. I lived there for about four years. I went to learn Spanish and then to do volunteer work and started a nonprofit and built a house and got married. But at that point, I was thinking about coming up north. My family lives a couple hours away, so I was looking for some place in Virginia. So I applied in Charlottesville. And I've been a language teacher all my life. I've taught Spanish, French, German, and ESL or EFL. But my heart is in in ESL working with immigrants. 
So my first year in Charlottesville, 2004, I taught elementary Spanish. And so my first year in the city schools, they hired one ESL teacher last minute for the high school. And then I switched over. And so the two of us worked together, but I actually worked on developing the program. We actually now have four full-time EL teachers and about, it varies, about 100 students in our program. Because of secondary migration and being a relocation site, the vast majority of our students are at the beginning level. A representative Mm -hmm. from your district said that you have at Charlottesville High School about half of your student population is white and half are other ethnicities. It's something that Charlottesville High School prides itself on is being a very diverse school. And in the time that I've been there, celebrating diversity has been really important to me. Throughout the country, you actually see more school segregation now than in the past, which is not official segregation, but statistically more and more students are either at majority white or majority non-white schools. And so it's more unusual to have a school like ours that is very mixed in that way. It brings its own challenges, right? We have a lot of scrutiny in terms of, are we really being equitable? That's a, that's a real focus of Charlottesville City Schools is, is really working toward greater equity. Certainly, there was more attention on that after the white supremacist attacks on August 12th and then the New York Times article that came out after a year after. So, but we are, we've already been on that trajectory for a long time. And so at the high school, I actually, for the last maybe 12 years, I've lost count exactly, I've been organizing a Celebrate Diversity Assembly every year, a chance to uplift all the different cultures and languages and backgrounds represented at our school in a positive light and encourage curiosity and interaction. It's become a source of pride at our school. You also initiated a week of interactive lunch activities for newcomers. You sponsor the International Club. You founded the Culture to Culture Peer Tutoring Program, and you helped launch La Union Latinx and Muslim Girls United. That's a lot of impact and, and passion. And so, and, and in your proposal, you talked, you used the word advocate multiple times. And so that sounds as much like a passion project as it does a career in teaching. What is it in your lived experience that directed your energies to impact ESL students? I am actually a first generation American. Um, that's just not obvious because my parents are both from Germany. So I look white European. I have I've lived here my whole life, so I have the accent, so no one really knows. But I did grow up bilingual. German was my first language, English my second. And then I went on to study French for 11 years and have a master's in teaching French. And then on that trajectory, I just, I'd, I'd always had this love of languages and cultures and how they interact and identity. I studied Vietnamese for a few years, and then I went to Guatemala to study Spanish. And yeah, and I worked for a nonprofit organization that had projects in Vietnam along the way. So I think it's sort of, it's been this mix of idealism and activism with bringing people together, breaking down barriers, building connections um, that has inspired me. Even when I was, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I was working at the Office of International Health and a nonprofit in working in Vietnam. And at that time, it was an office job. And I actually 
did some volunteer work evenings, uh, working with adult English learners. And I just found it so inspiring and energizing that even after a long day, they'd had a long day, I'd had a long day, there was just this, this energy, this drive, this desire to, to learn, to be able to adapt, to be able to navigate, to be able to become a productive citizen of this country. How I felt when I was with those immigrants who were just working so hard and had so much hope and big dreams. I, re I realized that that's what I wanted to spend more of my time doing. And so my journey has, has shifted many times, but it has always involved languages, cultures, identity, and trying to make the world a better place. Well, you're doing it. I found on the internet about your becoming a global citizen project. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Sure. When you talk about passion projects, that was one. It actually came out of a symposium of human rights in education at the University of Virginia. I took some refugee students over there for a student panel, and we had some work groups and talking about what the students wished they could have at the high school and what sorts of projects could we build out of this? What sort of action could we take? And we found that the English learners... They wanted more authentic interaction and discussion with their peers because the, the current education system, it really is sort of a deficiency-based model in terms of the English learners are always catching up, right? They're remediating, they're catching up, they're trying to reach the level of their peers, they're trying to pass the same tests as their peers. And so they don't really have opportunities to dig into debates and group discussions and to bring their own expertise to the table. So that idea came out of this symposium. It took about four years to jump through all the hoops to create a new course because this exact course didn't exist anywhere. It's, it's similar to some ethnic studies classes um, at some high schools. But it, it was very new, and I uh, worked with a professor at the University of Virginia, Carol Ann Spreen, who since went to NYU. We co-created this course that would be initially both a high school course and a course at UVA. And so the university students spent one day on UVA grounds and two days in the high school in my classroom working with my high school students. We had actually high school students, undergraduates, graduate students, master's students, and doctoral students, all working as equals in a learning community. It, just, it was amazing on so many levels. It's, we created this course that was, first of all, democratic classrooms, student-led. We had a structure, and we always start with a unit on identity. Who are we? Where are we coming from? Sort of how that plays out in the world, raising awareness. And then also atomic on human rights. And we look at the Declaration of Human Rights. And then the topics shift every year based on big current events or the students' passions. We recruited to have advanced English learners, students from different cultures who were no longer in the ESL program, and mainstream native English-speaking students um, from Charlottesville or, or from the U.S., it was actually really beautiful how we had different, all different demographics represented from all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, LGBT, 
Uh, we had a student with Asperger's one year. Oh my gosh, she gave this powerful speech on what it was like having Asperger's um, in the high school. And so these conversations that we had were just so powerful. It was like a microcosm of, of the world. And we learned tools for, for advocacy as well, so that when students were really fired up about something, they had productive ways to actually take action and advocate for themselves, for their families, for their communities. We Skyped with the governor on immigrant issues. Some of them went to D.C. to lobby. We went to Richmond to lobby on, on various issues, um, different campaigns, awareness campaigns from sustainability to homelessness, refugee issues. I think lots of times students, if they're not given that opportunity, they feel like their voices don't matter and that there's not really much they can do. And then when they get into it, they realize, wow, I actually am capable of doing a lot. And, you know, these students, most of them, they were not 18, they couldn't vote, but they could call their representatives. Mm -hmm. And we would do that in, in class and they'd be really nervous at first. And then it would become natural because they have a right to say what their opinion is and their representatives need to hear their voices. An article in your local paper, one of the students said it was a safe place to do that. Mm-hmm. That they didn't Absolutely. worry about offending another student or um, that they, they learned how to dialogue. It, it's honestly that way of teaching and learning is the way I wish all learning could be. It was just a testament how you can always build community if, if it's a priority and you're intentional. The Becoming a Global Citizen class that Tina created in conjunction with University of Virginia professors, undergraduate, and graduate students has a webpage where you can access student projects, lesson plans, and a class blog. Tina encourages you to visit globalcitizenchs.wordpress.com and also contact her via her school email for more information about the teen mentoring project her students facilitate. You can reach Tina at V-A-S-Q-U-E-T-1 at charlottesvilleschools.org. We are learning from Tina Vasquez, teacher at Charlottesville High School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Tina has dedicated her career to teaching languages, five of them, but primarily English to students who have immigrated to the United States. She will use her Fund for Teachers grant to attend the International Colloquium on Languages, Culture, and Identity in Schools and Society in Soria, Spain. So you have successful, impactful programs going on. What made you decide to apply for a Fund for Teachers fellowship, and how did you narrow down an area of focus to arrive at what Mm -hmm. you proposed? So I actually found out, fortunately, about Fund for Teachers through colleagues in the social-emotional learning educator community. There were two teachers who had gone to Cape Verde, and just described what an amazing experience that was and how amazing it was that there is a group out there that trusts teachers enough to develop their own professional learning. That was just mind-blowing to me. You know, thinking, really? I could create what makes sense to me <laughs> and, and pitch that? So I did. And I was looking at sort of what, what is the next step? What am I working on here? And, and I am involved in many different programs, particularly looking at diversity awareness and outreach, equity issues, and social emotional learning, and that cultural adaptation. 
And of course, the main population that I work with here are are refugees. And honestly, I feel like my students are either legal refugees or they're refugees without legal status because the stories and experiences and fears and dangers are very similar. And it's just a matter of what country students are coming from and and what the political relationship is, what that affects their status. So given that we I have students with these common struggles. I was looking at what are more ways to break down barriers, to build community, to create safety, to develop competencies that will serve these students in their academics and beyond, because oftentimes they are the navigators for their entire families. They become the interpreters, the translators, the the navigators. I started looking at different conferences, that sort of thing. I found one colloquium in Spain, International Colloquium on Languages, Cultures, and Identity in Society and School. At the same time, looking at the refugee patterns throughout the world, and it, and it appears that Spain is one of the more welcoming countries to refugees. And so I found so many programs that were doing innovative things that, that I'd never seen before in terms of sort of nonprofit, volunteer work, training immigrants in coding. And one of them, it's a restaurant that the chefs are from families of, of different refugee countries. And so the cuisine is a mix of whoever the most recent refugees are. And then there's even in southern Spain near Granada, there's a farm that was set up to bring together a sustainable living community, which is also a welcoming space for refugees from all over. And it's both creating housing and and employment and community for immigrants, but they were also repopulating a village that was dying out and that was becoming abandoned. Can you talk a little bit about how you see this changing the landscape of Charlottesville High School and your particular sphere of influence? I got to tell you, this is already shifting so much since the pandemic has begun, because I can actually see more and more connections. One is connecting more with families, engaging families. And that's also partly why I'm interested in seeing projects that work with, with entire families. But I'm also realizing more and more, we need to find ways for the schools to get out to the communities and not always expecting communities to come to the schools. There are areas for example, there are two brothers who had arrived maybe about a month before the school shut down from Honduras. And I noticed in school, in the beginning class, that one of them was really not very engaged. He sort of kept to himself. He was very much a loner. And the other one was very goofy. <laughs> he was trying to make jokes and make friends with kids. But neither one of them was really engaged in, in learning. And when I tried to talk to them, they were they didn't really want to share, you know. But during the pandemic, when I went to a home visit to them, and I was able to take some gift cards to a local grocery store and help them connect with some of the food deliveries and just to get by because I knew that their mother had, had lost her employment. Just going to the home, even though I stayed outside <laughs> six feet away from the door and had my mask on, that connection was so powerful. And this, the student, you know, when he came to the door, I got to see the softer, vulnerable side of him. And he was so appreciative. 
that we cared enough when school was closed to reach out and, and help them out and give them resources. After that, those brothers started showing up to my online courses. I have, I have multiple um, memories, recent memories like that, where just going to the home and being able to, to see the family in their home safe environment and just show that like I'm going through the trouble of going out to them and bringing books to them or bringing a hotspot to them really went a long way in building trust. I think trust is a real central issue in social emotional learning and cultural adaptation. I guess that to say, I'm hoping that my applications will um, lead to more effective ways to bring families into the school community, but also to get out to the community what struck me as you were talking about the boys, uh, the brothers to whom you reached out and the empathy that you showed to them, the kindness, is that your summer was supposed to be in Spain researching how to connect with students and working with refugee programs there, which you will do next summer. But this summer, you're doing that same thing in your neighborhood and with your students. And as awful as the pandemic is and will be, for the foreseeable future, the fact that you've been able to redeem that time and create trust and build into these students in ways that you really were intending to go to Spain to learn how to do, you're doing that now is, um, it's, it's really powerful. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Once your students go through your classroom, have a safe place to dialogue, have a, have a trusted place to bring their their skills and their knowledge and their genius to America through your classroom and find their voice. What is it that you hope for them when they leave your classroom, Tina? The end goal is to be global citizens. It's to have the social emotional competencies of collaboration, connection, communication, empathy, to go forward having experiences where they have been on the receiving end of being helped and then passing that forward, passing that kindness forward and having the skills to lift their voices in productive ways. You know, rather than complaining, you can write a letter, you can make a phone call, having the confidence in your skills and awareness. It is very satisfying to see that many times those goals are met. I have alumni who I remember when they were beginners arriving and, and one is working for the UN and one is a, a rising star youth organizer and activist and one is working for a, a local nonprofit as a youth outreach coordinator in the Latinx community. One went to the Peace Corps. She was a refugee from Burma and then she went to Mongolia with the, with the Peace Corps representing the U.S. And, you know, becoming actual citizens, you know, legal citizens of the U.S. and having, going through that process. I tell you, I, I'm the one, <laughs> I'm getting emotional, right? Because um, these students, they, they bring so much, so much hope and resilience and desire and inspiration and empathy. They're just models of what global citizens can look like and what true Americans can look like. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. 
but you can learn from almost 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org slash blog. Or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you, FFT fellow Tina Vasquez, for sharing with us about her work with newcomer students and her plans to explore the impact of ethnic and cultural identity-related issues on their academic success. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.